I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Director of Glaucoma Services and President of Advanced Eye Care of New York, Dr. Daniel LaRoche. And we're going to be talking about COVID-19 and eye care. The COVID-19 pandemic has changed the way that we think about our health, but many of us don't take into consideration how to keep our eyes safe during this time. Dr. Daniel LaRoche offers a range of common sense precautions that can significantly reduce one's risk of infection and discusses how telehealth is helping his patients. He notes there is another critical issue that COVID-19 has brought to the forefront, the issue of healthcare disparities among black and brown people. Dr. LaRoche says there are several things that can be done to not only address, but to help combat this issue. He received his medical doctorate with honors in research from Weill Cornell University Medical College and completed his glaucoma fellowship at New York Eye and Ear. Welcome to the show, doctor. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Nice to have you here. Okay, the COVID pandemic and eye care, very interesting. Um, Eye care is very important, and probably before COVID-19, most people viewed taking care of their eyes as very important, but now we're stuck in the house, we can't go out, people are afraid to go to the hospital, uh, afraid that they're going to get COVID, and so we don't perhaps are not taking care of ourselves as well as we should, including our eyes. So what do we do? What should we be doing now? Well, um, with COVID-19, people have to really try to stay home, self-quarantine to really reduce their risk, particularly the elderly. Uh, But people, when they do have to go out, they have to wear a mask, um, wear gloves, um, and wear eye protection as well. Because if someone coughs, um, some of the material can get into your eye. There have been a few reported cases of conjunctivitis being the initial symptom of COVID-19. And we know that in the patients that are hospitalized with COVID-19, up to 30% can get a conjunctivitis as well. So for the seniors, it's really important to try to stay at home and try to get a smartphone or learn how to use a smartphone and get in touch with their doctors to be able to communicate via telehealth because most doctors are doing some sort of telehealth for those people that are seniors, those people that have pre-existing conditions. A lot of times, uh, things can be resolved over the phone. For example, I've had patients who contact me via telehealth and they had a red eye, which was such a conjunctival hemorrhage or a conjunctivitis that we could treat by sending some medication to the pharmacy or just with observation with a subconjunctival hemorrhage. Or if they have a sty, for example, which is a swelling of the eyelid that can be treated with warm compresses and the prescription we could send to the pharmacy. So that can reduce that patient having to come out to be exposed to COVID-19. At so you can. Time, I want to stop you there because I want to ask you, you. So you are able to see or detect or to diagnose? I would say, just over the computer, telehealth. You you just dial uh, into your, in some in yeah. some diagnoses. Yes, some some that are visual that we can see. Uh, there's a large number that we can't. But I'll give you an example. I've had some glaucoma patients that are on medications, and they were scheduled to come in during the pandemic. And I had their record from the last visit. I saw that they were stable. And I was able to communicate them via, with telehealth and say, okay, how are you doing? They didn't have any new symptoms. Um, if they were running low on their medications, we could re- review their medications. I discussed COVID-19 education with them. And we could say, okay, we could postpone your visit for the next three months or so. Whereas if there's another glaucoma patient in particular who during their last visit, the pressure was too high and we had made some changes in their medication and we really needed to see if it was working to lower their eye pressure, 
we say, okay, uh, we will need to see you to come in. So the best way to do this is to come in by car. Don't come in via public transportation. Come in at this certain time. You'll be the only one in the office. There'll be no one around, so that will help ensure your safety. Um, and we're not even at the hospital because we have a separate off-site facility. And so we can give instructions so the patient can get out, come in, get what they need, and go back home quite safely and be reassured as well. So but, Doctor, what about those path. patients? And what about those patients? And I think I mentioned that in the intro, like those patients who don't have a car, who don't have access to a car? Should they get on the subway or should they get on public transportation? Um, well, then if they don't have a car, we try to say, well, can you do Uber? Do you have a family member that has a car? Uh, so- someone to, you know, that can, can help because that's the safer way to do it. Because once you go into public transportation, uh, there's a greater risk of exposure. In New York City, though, um, the buses have done very well. Um, with social distancing and and significantly reducing the capacity, the amount of people on the buses. So buses will probably be the next form in that respect and making sure you stay away from people that are not wearing masks and you wear masks and eye protection as well and cover yourself with clothing. And then when you go back home, remove your clothing, take a bath and wash your clothing as well to minimize your contamination with any risk of COVID. Now, one other thing uh, that you've been saying that I wanted to ask you, because you you mentioned wearing a mask and the wearing eye protection, what's the difference? What's the eye protection that you're talking about? Well, the eye protection is like a a protective eye shield or protective eye glasses that you can get online, the goggles that that protect um, any fluids from getting towards your eye. Uh, We are mandated to wear this in the hospital setting in case a patient coughs or someone coughs, because when someone coughs, you know, droplets can get into the eye, and, you know, that can increase their risk of getting uh, the COVID virus. So that's why for people who are particularly at higher risk, like over the age of 60 and uh, with pre-existing conditions, you know, uh, we recommend that. We're mandated to do that in our hospitals, and I share that with my patients at higher risk. So, okay, so there, there's differences in Depends. On what is high risk is what over sixty, over sixty five, or I guess yeah, it just people depends. over sixty. Yeah. You know, there's an increased death rate. People that are obese, people with diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, immune suppressed states. If they have cancer and a weakened immune system, uh, or, or collagen vascular disease, those are going to be people with a higher risk for this virus and complications. And what about children? I've been reading that children are, and I are te- they're, I forgot, but the numbers are. are getting higher and higher in terms of the children they test who are positive for COVID. I guess they don't necessarily show symptoms, but um, but they do test positive for COVID-19. Yeah, where, do they, yeah, where do they fit into this picture? And in, uh, in black and brown communities and in poor communities where there are several people in the household, there's a higher rate of transmission because of the number of people that are living in the household compared to wealthy areas where maybe you have one or two people living in a two or three bedroom apartment and in some communities uh, in higher dense areas you have six people living in a two six or seven people living in a two bedroom apartment and so there's a higher risk of transmission that can occur uh, in those uh, black and brown areas also there's a higher density of people around the higher density of public transportation and so there's going to be higher rates of transmission in those areas. That's why opening schools has been such a controversial issue uh, recently because, you know, you can't get away from that higher density because there's so many children involved in one setting. And things that we have to reform how we do this and we look at how we do this to help keep things safe, safe for the public by reducing the density and reducing the amount of people that are higher risk for exposure. 
So in terms, I think that's, uh, I guess that's another question I have. Uh, What about opening schools as you're discussing? I mean, can you maintain this kind of behavior that you're talking about that, uh, you know, good health habits, which include taking care of your eyes, your vision, uh, what opening schools, um, what's going to, um, yeah. I mean, my, my rec, you know, my thoughts about opening schools is that I think you have to start out with um, allowing the people with the lowest risk to go to school. Uh, there are some households that have elderly people, okay, and the children from those households probably should not go to school because there's a high risk of getting the virus when they go to school, and then they could bring it home to the elderly people the elderly people in their household or people who may be immunosuppressed in those households. And so I've not heard much conversation about that, but if it was up to me, I would start out with, okay, let's look at the households and where these kids are from and who's at risk for exposure. And I would start out with the youngest households first because they do the best in terms of the virus. Often they can get the virus. It's more like a cold and they can recover. That's not 100% absolute, but according to the statistics, um, they do the best. The death rates are lower. The morbidity is less. So I would start out with the uh, youngest households, the youngest children, and even with the staff of the schools, have the youngest staff staff the schools. And those that are elderly, those with pre-existing conditions, uh, do more remote activities from home to start out with until we start to develop herd immunity and until uh, uh, to reduce the exposure and reduce the hospitalization and then eventually gradually increasing it uh, depending on the metrics. Um, in New York, for example, we have a very low uh, COVID testing rate right now. It's under 3%. And so uh, we're in a good position to try to start something like that. But there is a, we have to be careful because we can't go back to the, having the same density of students. And students, unfortunately, are not as responsible with hand washing. And, uh, you know, they like to hug each other and communicate with each other. Uh, and we have to enforce masking as best as we can uh, to try to keep the numbers low. But that would be my approach, reducing the risk and putting the lowest risk involved first and the highest risk much later on. So, okay, so you're saying you do start with the young people, the kids, the younger households as opposed to the older households. You know, when you talk about uh, comorbidity and uh, before COVID-19, I I talked to a lot of experts and programs having to do with, uh, I mean, Americans are overweight. 50% of Americans before before this academic, epidemic, pandemic, um, were overweight and I don't know how much, and, and, and obese. So half of us, um, Americans are, uh, have these comorbidity, uh, we are subject to all, you know, to the being obese, being overweight. How does that, I mean, how does that fit into, I mean, how many people aren't, I guess, in that kind of a position? I mean, I don't know about you're the absolutely, statistics. You're absolutely <laughs> right. Yeah. We have an obesity epidemic in America. About 50% of people are obese. And what I tell my patients is that right now is the best time to try to lose weight, uh, to try to prepare your body for COVID-19 infection when it comes your way. And what I tell them specifically to do is to drink uh, vegetable juice. Uh, specifically, you can use like cucumbers or whatever your favorite vegetables are. Uh, put it in a blender, make a juice out of it. I like to add blueberries myself uh, to it to give it a little flavor, and I'll drink that three times a day. What that does, that fills you up. Um, it's very low calorie. It gives you essential vitamin A, vitamin C, vitamin E to help your immune system. 
And by losing weight, if you can get your BFI, your body mass index below 30, and you can do, go online, look for body mass index calculator, and you put your height in and you put your weight in, and it will tell you what your BMI is. And so being 30 and under, 30 is like an obesity range, and if you can get down even lower, maybe 25, 18 to 25 is like a more normal range, but at least under 30, you'll be taking great strides to strengthen your immune system and taking personal responsibility to be in a better position to fight this virus when it comes your way. So why is obesity, and I have to say, my BMI is perfect, <laughs> but uh, I want to preface uh, what I'm going to say, but why does obesity, how does that impact the virus or your reaction to it? I mean, what, what, what goes on? Why does being overweight or being obese make you much more vulnerable to getting sicker or even dying? Well, when you're carrying a lot of weight with you, often that's going to increase the stress on your heart. Uh, stress on your cardiovascular system, uh, stress on your metabolism, increase your risk of heart disease, diabetes, uh, cardiovascular disease, and uh, all those things are not good because those are additional stresses on your body. And so then when you get the stress of COVID-19 with the fever, the inflammation, and it attacks your lungs and all of that, it becomes too overwhelming for someone. Uh, particularly if, you know, a lot of people are walking around with undetected heart disease, undetected diabetes, and so they don't even realize that they're already compromised and, you know, they're on an edge, and then the virus hits them, and then it just completely overwhelms them. So uh, that's the major way obesity does that. And and so by diet, changing your diet around, and exercise, um, you know, that's just extremely important. You can make a huge difference in your health just within a few weeks, you know, just within a few weeks by making those slight changes like that and taking personal responsibility to help increase your odds against this virus. Right, that's what we can do personally. Uh, now, what about more from because I know you talk about this uh, from a societal point of view perspective. What can we do in terms of overall health care for people and overall health uh, uh, care for people who are uh, the, to overcome some of these disparity, disparity disparities among black and brown people. Okay. Well, the disparities in healthcare are pretty well known. If you go to PubMed.gov, which is a website to look up scientific articles, there are over 50,000 articles written on healthcare disparities. And some things that can be done are, one, making sure everybody has health insurance. Okay, um, by having everyone have health insurance, at least people can get access to care and, and wellness and maintenance in that respect. So that's one. That alone, though, will not be 100%. A lot more will also need to be done because we know, according to Medicare data, and these are all patients that have Medicare, that blacks have 30% less access to cataract surgery and 7 to 10 times higher rates of blindness from glaucoma. So there are other things that have to be done. And we have to really eliminate the structural uh, race-based uh, uh, policies that have been created that has created really more like a, a structural plantation-type capitalism that we have today in our society. And this, these policies affect housing, education, criminal justice, health care, uh, the workforce. And, for example, the net wealth of white Americans are $171,000 per year. The net wealth of a black family is 10 times less at 17000 
per year. And this is recently in 2016. So you have a 10 to 1 wealth gap, which is the key reason for these health care disparities. And this was initially created uh, with uh, slavery and Jim Crow segregation, which we have all worked to overcome that, okay, which is good. But we have not worked to overcome the structural policies that have been in place that have continued to affect our society in housing, education, and criminal justice and health care. So we have to really look at all the policies that we have in place and, to, and all the leadership that we have in place to deconstruct that, to really address um, this inequality that exists in our society. And we also have to provide a living income stipend for poor people to access food and reduce malnutrition. Right now, we have a huge food insecurity in the richest country in the world. We have a huge food insecurity that's taking place, which is really unacceptable. And uh, because of the, the history of race relations in this country, we've not developed the social programs that you see that other countries like Canada has, uh, England, uh, European countries have. They have to help prevent this, you know, uh, extreme poverty where people in the richest country of the world are having access, uh, difficulty to access food and malnutrition, and that, that's existing in America. Uh, I think what so also you have at- to do is make, you know, I don't think there's peop- that uh, people, the connection is not made en- enough that, you know, it's as important for your neighbor to be healthy, but that's good for you too. It's good for all of us. It's good for everyone when children are healthy, when children eat well, when everyone does, but how that makes a country strong, how it makes us all strong. I, I don't know, you know, I, I don't know if I'm being clear about that, but there has that Well, when you say your yeah. neighbor, right? When you say your yeah. neighbor, some people may envision my next door neighbor. Usually in communities, your next door neighbor is doing okay. But you also have to be concerned about your neighbor on the other side of the railroad tracks. Mm-hmm. Uh, across the United States, across many cities, the railroad tracks usually divide the city between black and white in many cases, or uptown versus downtown. And so you want to make sure that all communities in America are healthy and happy and safe and, and, and you know, are doing okay in that respect. So you can't have, like, one community which is wealthy and another community that's in desperate poverty and then wonder, well, why is that, you know, why is that happening and not look at the history of our country and the social construct of the policies that have helped contribute to that. And so in, we also have to look at the government and look at all the funding. I'll give you an example. Like the government recently gave a company $1.5 billion for vaccine development. Now, was any of that money tied into diversity training, diversity education, uh, diversity leadership training in that respect? Uh, that's an important aspect. You know, because if all funding from the government uh, was tied to diversity and addressing diversity to help address the, the wrongs of the past, that would make a big difference. Uh, same thing with housing, education, uh, and criminal justice reform. Um, even training in my, in my specialty, I'm an eye surgeon. In the United States, we have 41 million blacks, and there are only 400 black eye surgeons for 41 million blacks. Now, we have 18 other ophthalmologists, 18,000 other ophthalmologists, but there's a huge maldistribution. Most of them are on the West Coast or on the East Coast, very few in the South, relatively. And they're mostly distributed in wealthier white communities and not in poor black communities. So we have to train many more uh, black physicians as well to help address 
the needs in black communities as well. There's a huge disparity. Blacks make up about 13% of the population and uh, less than 1% are ophthalmologists. So what about physicians like yourself who are in that position? You're one of the 400. Uh, Is there anything, and you're in New York City, and you're associated with one of the best uh, eye and ear hospitals in the world. So do you have a group of physicians in that position that you're in, let's say, who can or are helping to facilitate all of these little changes that you've been talking about? All right. Well, I'm in New York City. I'm in private practice um, in Harlem and in Southeast Queens, which are predominantly African-American communities in that respect. I'm affiliated with New York Iron Air and NYU and Island Eye Surgical Center. Those are the premier institutions for ambulatory uh, eye care surgery. And I do complex cataract and glaucoma surgery, and I'm able to use those institutions to bring my patients there for care there. But um, at those specific institutions, they're start, just starting to work on diversity issues as well. Um, recently at New York Iron Air, um, they've expanded to become the largest high residency program in the country and take 10 residents a year. And they've taken like one African-American out of 10 just recently within the last uh, three years. Um, but progress has been very, very slow. Um, at, at NYU, they don't have any African-American residents there. Um, now, we've... I've spoken to the leadership and tried to discuss these issues with them, but there's still sometimes a lot of resistance because they're um, used to doing what they do, and sometimes they look for excuses. One of the excuses is that there's maybe a lack of minorities in the pipeline coming up, and that is partially an issue, and I'll give you an example why. Um, In the Bronx, Bronx Science High School, Okay, that's a magnet high school that trains the future doctors, lawyers, and business people in New York City and America. At that magnet high school, there's only 3% African-American, okay, despite the fact that New York City is 26% black, okay? Well, why is that? The reason why that is is because they use standardized testing as an admissions criteria. And this standardized testing has cultural and class bias, Okay, if someone is wealthier and you can afford to be in a wealthier school district and take good test prep classes and pay for test prep classes, you'll do better on that test. Okay, and so that contributes to this systemic problem that we have. What we have to do is we have to change that to say, okay, if you have a magnet school in New York City, we're going to take the best students from each high school throughout the different neighborhoods in New York City, whatever that number is, the top 10 students, top 20 students from each high school. And so you will have a diversity immediately overnight that reflects that, and those kids can get access to that higher education, magnet education to prepare them for that pipeline to become the future doctors and lawyers and business people. So that's another example of a systemic entity that needs to be revamped and rechanged around to really make some changes. And that has been going on for quite some time. All right. Well, given that, and we only have a couple minutes left, can you give us websites to go to for more information about what you've been talking about? And and, uh, if people obviously are interested in the work you're doing, as well as some of the other uh, issues that we've talked about, are there specific websites that you would recommend? Um, Yeah. yeah, For for eye care on glaucoma and cataract surgery, my website is www.advancedeyecareny.com. You can Google Daniel LaRoche, MD, and get 
application from our website and YouTube. And there is a new site I just recently found also called Contract with Black America dot uh, U.S. Okay, and some scholars have developed like a, a 40-page document there that discusses some of the policies that I mentioned and some of the issues as well. And you can read through that to see some of the recommendations that have been made to help address health care disparities. And I really want to thank you for the opportunity uh, and, and say thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show today. And we've been talking to Dr. Daniel LaRoche. Thank you. Okay. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 